So this week we're going to answer the question or talk through the question of do I stay or do I go? Do I stay in my current job or should I leave? And uh, Sam, you're you're an expert in this area uh, as someone who hasn't allowed themselves to grow moss on their stone, so to speak. Uh, you've moved around quite a bit. So maybe um, start us off today by uh, by but maybe reflecting on what kind of mindset uh, enables you to do that. For sure. And it's a fun question to answer because so my, my career is not too long. I'm maybe like 15 years in. And I would say how I, how I address that philosophically at the beginning of my career is very different from how I'm thinking about it now. Uh -huh. but, the, but the common theme I would say for me is and what Jonathan's referring to is I'm a job hopper for sure. And I've had a lot of jobs. I have an average tenure of maybe a year or a little bit more at most in what is out of a 15 year career, probably 10 or 12 jobs. So it's one of those, I'm like that guy who's moving apartments every eight months, basically in my personal life. So it can be hectic, but my guiding principle was I was never able to stomach persistent unhappiness. I'll start there. I, that's that's well, the, the foundation. Let's break down. I, I think that's a good point about, you know, different stages in, in your life, uh, maybe having a different mindset. You said that it changed. Uh, so maybe take us through, you know, the, the start of the mindset or your mindset at the start and, and maybe where you are now with it. Sure. My mindset at the start I think like a lot of people, when I got into the job market, it was in right around the 2008 recession. And I remember even in the early 2000s, there was still the prevailing wisdom of loyalty was a huge, a huge import to people that you showed growth in a particular company within maybe multiple roles that you stayed and you made a name for yourself. Longevity in a company equated to career equity in a way. And in the beginning of my career, that's basically the advisement I got from a lot of mentors, a lot of career coaches, and I was really afraid to jump jobs. The mentality still at that time was very strongly get a job and really start to work hard to carve a name for yourself and climb the ladder in whatever role you get. And anytime I thought about leaving a job, people would say, oh, you haven't been there for a year or you haven't been there for 18 months or two years even. People are going to look at you as a flight risk. People are going to look at you as noncommittal. There was a lot of negativity associated with that culturally. And I would say earlier in my career, I was less confident. I mean, when you're young, you're more impressionable. And I, I think you're more receptive to advisement of that nature from people who are more experienced, people who are your senior at companies, people who are your advisors, your mentors. And I was scared a lot. I was very fearful of trying to balance my unhappiness or my feeling claustrophobic or my feeling of being constrained in a particular role with the idea that if I left too soon, my resume would start looking really bad or I would, I would somehow be endangering my human capital. So there was a lot of, in the beginning, there was a lot of trepidation, a lot of fear, and a lot of nervousness about career moves. And that was, I'd say, what categorized that time in my life. I mean, I guess in the absence of uh, an alternative, uh, fear will just seep in. So in other words, unless you're actively pursuing something or trying to do something in a specific way, 
uh, and, you know, comes to mind, we had a whole episode on finding your purpose, then that vacuum will be filled in with everyone else's voices and all your shoulds and fears. Does that sound sure. right? Yeah, I, I would say so. And in the beginning, when, when I was younger, and I'm sure this is characterizes a lot of people who are earlier in their career, your instincts can be one thing, but if conventional or the majority's wisdom is another, and you don't have the confidence to stand your ground or be the outlier or, or be standing firmly in the minority, that's another environment that nurtures fear because you want to look, you want to look at the, you want to look at conventional wisdom and assume that it's solid, assume that popular vote actually has some meaning that consensus has meaning. I think we're trained to do that instinctively and, you know, safety in numbers. I think it's very human. So in the beginning, I think fear often is, is when you're going against that, there's a lot of fear just naturally that comes from that. Even. What would be your advice to yourself, to your younger self, if you could, you know, do it again, or if, if you could have been the conventional wisdom uh, giver to, to younger Sam? Oh, oh, geez. Younger Sam was a whole different person. So I'd have to temper, I guess, how I would convey the well, wisdom. Let, let's say to a young, yeah. To just anyone in the market who's you know more in the earlier part of their career i think the logic i would say now that you and i talk about a lot in the podcast is that whether conventional wisdom is right or wrong is irrelevant actually because your unhappiness if you're putting yourself in a situation professionally that makes you unhappy it's untenable i think i would tell people do not expect to be unhappy or do not accept unhappiness as the status quo in your personal or professional lives. Because once you start to accept unhappiness or discontent as the status quo and you justify it for a variety of reasons, that's where your life becomes sustainably unhappy. <laughs> and that is not, that's not the way that anyone should be living. So regardless of conventional wisdom and its application, I would counsel young people and people who maybe aren't as sure-footed in the direction that you should always be able to be happy with your professional and your personal choices. And if you're not, it's a trigger that you need to change something. I also want to comment on what you just said uh, about uh, listening to conventional wisdom and, and what people are telling you to do. If we live our lives as uh, a should, then we will never be better than what other people think we can be. And we will never tap into our unique energy that would make us self-actualized to contribute to the world that which we have uh, the unique capability to contribute. So the inherently conventional wisdom will always be a constraint against self-actualization. Do you agree with that? <laughs> I do, except for the maybe the very rare instances where conventional wisdom just happens to align perfectly with your unique purpose or your unique happenstance. Well, it's kind of like is right twice a day type of mentality. 100%. I meant that if it's if, if that's all you're doing is conventional, yeah. you know, living based on conventional wisdom, you have nothing else to fill that void. Well, and, and there's that logically, it, it brings up a good point at a very high level, which is the majority rule or the popular consensus. There's two ways you could look at it. You could look at it that inherently because everyone is unique, it can only be uniquely fit or appropriate for a very small amount of people. But at the same time, there's 
there's lots of dimensions of consensus, which is the group or conscious wisdom of many people getting together and collectively trying to solve issues or derive some information. So there is a high value in that, but conforming to it blindly, I think is really what you're talking about, Jonathan. And that is always going to have a low return for you, unless you're incredibly lucky, like winning the lottery. And, and I think maybe that was a convoluted way to say it, but I think we should always be balancing those two, those two forces. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I look at conventionalism as just something that it, it's a form of input and information, but that's not like a, it shouldn't be a competition against what you're thinking. It should inform how you think, but it shouldn't right. be, I think completely this, conventionalism completely the opposite, and that's it. No, it, that's a piece of information, and you have to consider it when you're thinking the way you're thinking. Right. And another way to say it is, is knowledge. It's knowledge. It's great knowledge that you have to apply to your context, like everything that we talk about, you know, summarizing what you're saying, because you could also think about it. And I'll say it maybe in a, a more intuitive way for people. Conventional wisdom, especially around don't job hop or things like that. The majority, it, it may apply to the majority, but then if you follow it all the time, you will become average. The majority represents an average. And if you want to be exceptional, then a lot of times the common wisdom that is the the mean or the average is going to keep you average. And I think that's that's something we have to be realized. The more we use average wisdom, we will have average outcomes. Sometimes you have to take it, contextualize it, and then expand it or go beyond the average to become more than average. What are some of the, I mean, you, you still in all your job hopping must have considered the basics like you know career progression or salary or, you know, things like that, or was that never a consideration? So early in my career, certainly I was only chasing money, which again is probably a very unconscious thing to do, but that's what drove me earlier in my career. And in the marketplace that we live in, as it becomes easier to job hop, uh, you know, with digital solutions and more interfaces for different opportunities, job hopping in the 2000s and 2010s was the easiest way to increase your income quickly. No question. I mean, you normally people were locked into three to five percent annual compensation increases i'd say when you job hop you could get 10 15 20 percent if you were good at negotiating and it was just easier to do year over year so people could tell you there was a conflict where hey stay at your job loyalty is rewarded but it was only being rewarded three percent year over year whereas every year if i could convince people that i gain enough human capital enough experience and they would hire me at, I, I was getting, I remember in my early to mid twenties, I was probably changing jobs frequently enough where I was getting 15 to 20% uh, annual increases year over year. And that was mostly my metric. And I guess you could say being a mercenary or lacking loyalty or some sort of continuity and integrity in terms of career progression to me was worth all that extra money. And that's what drove me honestly in my yeah. early days. And these days, I mean, people, it's skills based, the market. And uh, if, if you say you're going to leave and instead of being disloyal, you're likely to be offered, you know, some incentive to stay. And, uh, you know, like, so it's not looked at the same way that it, uh, that it used to be, if you could prove that your skills are there. Yeah. And that's a, that's a quick note about how, how quickly things have progressed, I think, and really just the last decade, because uh, I can, in these moments, especially zoom out and even look at the course of my career where things have gone. And there was a while where in the 2000s, people were still shaming people pretty aggressively for job hopping too too frequently. 
And now I feel like it's becoming your mentality that you just expressed is becoming more common where now employers are struggling and they're the ones who are the onus is on them to retain people and, and they have to kind of sell themselves. They're not saying, ah, these flighty people are going to fail in life. It's like, those are the talent. And now people are fighting to keep them where they are versus, you know, the shaming and, and the conventional wisdom trying to discourage people from, from turnover. So let's fast forward now to today, you know, the, the, the market we're in and someone comes to you and says uh, they're thinking of leaving their job. What, what are the questions you ask them to interrogate uh, whether or not it's a good idea? Now we're in the more conscious Sam territory. And the first thing I would ask is why generally, you know, open-ended. I think if somebody's trying to leave their job, you want to ask, well, why is that? Are you unhappy? Are you chasing something? What is the purpose? Where's the, where's the tension? What is the impetus, I guess, for the change? That'd be my first question. So if they say that uh, they can't stand their boss. If they can't stand their boss, and then you go into root, not even root cause, like after our, after we had a conversation with Madeline from the Rewild group, now I, I don't want to use the word problem anymore, uh, problem analysis. Now I'm, yeah, I'm moving away from that. So the tension with one's boss, to me, that wouldn't be enough to trigger a, a job move. My first question would be, well, have you talked to your boss openly about what's bothering you? That would always be my first advisement. I think before you ever leave a situation, and before you even ask a follow-up on that, whether it's you have a problem with your boss, you have a problem with your coworkers, you have this problem, that problem. If you haven't first tried to solve that tension by being transparent and being honest, then I don't think there's a basis for action until you start there. And that would be my general advisement to people in jobs or in positions where there's energetic tension, which is have you discussed it openly with those around you to give them an opportunity to support you? Because that's where I honestly think in jobs, you get a lot of really great outcomes, but a lot of people are, because having critical conversations is so overwhelmingly uncomfortable for people, they would rather leave a job. And I've seen this over and over again. They would rather leave a job and have an honest conversation. And in those situations, which there's a lot of them, I would say that's not the right time to leave a job. Yeah. I mean, I guess the, the old adage, wherever you go, there you are. So if you have, if it's a problem with you, as opposed to a problem with the job, wherever you go, you're going to take that with you and recreate the same exact conditions. So that is, you know, how, how would you tell someone to interrogate that as a general matter? I think as a general matter, you, you created a situation, the first one, which is I have a problem with my boss. And let's just generalize that to I have a problem with an external source outside of myself beleaguering me in some way. Because if it's truly, if that, that situation is truly external, external things can be managed either through introspection and how you react to the external world or physically it could be managed. And that to me is something that has to be interrogated. If your general question or your general answer to why there's tension is, this is not aligned with me personally. This is not honest for me. There's not a lot of value. Like if it's coming from within, then that's something that, you know, is starting to be more justifiable to address. But everything generally externally should be, have you taken accountability? Have you taken ownership of the issue? And if so, what's the result? That would be the first line of inquiry. So let me give you a specific one. You know, people tell me they're not being treated right at the, you know, wherever they are. They should have more things coming their way. You know, they should have got a promotion. They should have, you know, they, 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 they're being overlooked. 
So in that scenario, how do you tell a person to, what, what perspective would you give to someone like that? It's going to be, it's going to start sounding super consistent, I think. And again, external. So people aren't treating you right. They're not giving you what you want. People are not behaving per your expectation. The guidance is always going to be, where's the expectation coming from? So let's start with what is your expectation and why is it the case? And if people are violating your expectation, have you articulated it to them in an earnest and honest way? And have you received feedback about it? And I would say hey, that's 99% of I haven't interrogated my own expectations for objective validity, and I have not expressed them to another person and gotten their feedback. And if those two things haven't been done yet, then those would always be the starting advisement. And I will say a side note there, because I did start doing this, and, and this actually is all part of this, this phrase called managing up. I don't know if anyone's heard of that, managing up. That means managing your boss, asking for what you want, being more articulate about your needs at work. I started doing that more. And actually, one of the bosses I really started practicing with that was is here with us today, Jonathan Adams, when I worked under him a while, a while ago. He was the recipient of my managing up. But in general, the idea is if you're honest and you say, I want this salary, I'm having this problem. If you start asking for the things you want, then a lot of times you'll receive, or at least you'll get an answer that illuminates why your expectations may be materially off or unrealistic. And then you start having real conversations. That's when my career really started to turn around, like or not a turn around, to hyperactivate, let's say, because I was afraid for a very long time to ask for what I wanted, not even ask for what I wanted, to articulate what I wanted to other people. It was very, it was easier to sit at my desk and say, I'm not getting the money I think I deserve. And that whole conversation was only had with me. Suddenly when you open that up and you start having that with your boss and you're having that with your colleagues, you don't get fired instantly. People are like, you are a cheeky brat. You're fired. No one says that ever. They actually are now able to interface and engage with you in an authentic way and can start to work through some of your angst in either a positive way or a way that's going to hasten you to being confident that now is the right time to leave, I guess, part of our conversation. Yeah. I mean, I think if the nature of the conversation and managing up is just talking about what you want, you know, like I want, you know, I want red pens. I want, you know, like in other words, like it's a list of the things that you want. It still has to be tethered to the output. Right. And, and, and something that is uh, a value beyond just yourself or do you not, does that, do you not agree with that? I totally agree with that. I counsel people that way all the time. And that's something that you, you'll be corrected on quickly if you just talk about yourself. So we have this conversation and let's say Jonathan's the boss and I'm the, I'm the employee. If I come to him, like he was just saying, and I say, I want this, I want my desk to look like this. I want this compensation. I want that. The next logical response when you open that conversation up is okay. For what, value are you adding to the company that deserves that compensation? For what value to me do you deserve special concessions? And in that, the conversation becomes real and there becomes an interchange. It doesn't, or, or an exchange. It doesn't, you are reminded that you are part of a collective and that your purpose in being a part of that group is to provide value to the group, not just harvest value for yourself. So I think that that indi hyper-individualist thinking, that autonomous thinking is what sets a lot of wrong expectations because you should always be if you're managing up or you're having honest conversations at work, you should always be thinking of the format. I want this. 
because either it will help enable me to help the company better, help my team better, or because it will let you know, because I already am helping the team better. And this would help me feel more personally whole so I can continue to support the team or the company, but everything should be in relation in how you're integrating or adding to the whole, no question. And there is a line at, w- at which point you, your personal engagement, even if it's beyond the entity, the, the, co- the company, still matters. You know, that, that's what people are trying to do when they attract employees now. You know, they're, they're, they're making it clear, you know, you have employers, that's employees that say, employers that say, you give me five hours of your day and you, the sixth and seventh is yours, you know, to, to do with what you want. Um, you know, more conscious thinking like that, because that ultimately gives the whole person and feels like there is an actual exchange going on with the corporation. So that makes sense. I could say uh, if someone's managing up to me, uh, if I'm not engaged with them or I don't inherently don't see the value, my I'll be very limited in how much I want to entertain that. In fact, it'll come across probably as being bothered by all the requests. Now, obviously, if I'm being an authentic manager, then I should be speaking about the issues that make me feel that the person is not adding the value they could rather than wait till the, the, you know, they're, they're coming to me with, with requests. But if the person is, if I see the value in the person, then I should be motivated to listen to their managing up because at the end of the day, that's my best ticket to, you know, if, if, if everybody's so concerned about control or losing control, I think there's a fear that if someone says, oh, I also want to pursue something on the side, you know, oh, I'm losing control. I want to control that. No, by controlling it you or attempting to and cutting off that conversation, you lose visibility into it and then you have absolutely no control. So, or not, not that controls the issue, but you have absolutely no meaningful engagement with a person. So I could say, you know, it's a very, very uh, successful uh approach because whether, or or it's a great approach managing up, because if you're successful, then, you know, obviously there'll be great engagement, but if you're not, it tells you something about your dynamic and probably tells you you're not going to get very far with this particular manager. And that's exactly right. And and that's, it's a good point to note that a manager is not always going to react well to requests. There's good managers and there's bad managers, just like there's good employees and bad employees. But the but to summarize what you were just saying, and I wholly agree, is honest conversation always will move you towards where you need to be with the person. Good employee, bad manager, having an honest conversation about what you want, bad manager says negatively, now we're in the territory of, of this time to go. So when you're linking up the question earlier, okay, well, what do I advise in these situations? Well, you tell me, I did have an honest conversation with my manager and he laughed in my face and said, you're never making any more money in this role. And this is the end of the line for you. Well, you had the conversation and now that's a good trigger to go, <laughs> you know, but you weren't going to get there. There was no reason to make assumptions until you had that conversation. And to the point of asking for what you want, like you mentioned, a good manager is going to either give you one of two things. Either they're going to give you advice on how to mature because your expectations are completely misaligned with reality, or they're going to be thrilled that you're asking for more and they're going to give you assignments so that they can better utilize you and you will get more and then hopefully more compensation or more whatever you're looking for will come in tow. But how could that be possible without having an honest conversation? It's, it's In my opinion, it's not. And that's the difference between being when I thought I was struggling with my career and when I started to really find my footing was really just 
conversing honestly with my superiors and the people around me. That that's it. I remember, you know, just reflect on a on one of the first few conversations we had that were more mindful or authentic. Uh, I think it took both of us some time to reflect on it because, you know, you build up to that moment. I'm sure you did, you know, like when you're not used to, you know, saying certain things or you don't know, like it's not the conventional wisdom. Sometimes it's hard to hear what just happened. You know, you be built up so much that it's, you're still in your head. So it is something I think that takes a little practice before, you know, and, and you see how it works before you, you know, uh, get used to it. I don't know if that made sense, but I, it did. It's, it's not as easy. It's it's always easy when you've practiced something and you've become pretty good at it to tell other people, just be honest, just have open conversations, just be conscious when you're interacting with people. But it is a muscle. And I do think it takes a lot of practice. And I agree with you that now it becomes more naturally to me. But I, I can I can vaguely remember a time where I was afraid to talk to my superiors or my team leads or my bosses about anything for fear of looking stupid, being embarrassed, being rebuked. Um, I, there was just a tremendous amount of overwhelming fear to prepare for any interaction because of a number of things going on, either because I was unconfident, I wasn't conscious, I was projecting a number of paralyzing fears on myself. So I'm not saying this is going to be an overnight thing. If you're listening to this and, you, and you're saying, oh, well, that's easier said than done. Just be honest with my manager about what I need. But once you start doing it a few times and you start seeing the effects, I will promise you that it does get easier. And, and as you just said, Jonathan, it's, it's almost a muscle to, to have a little faith because there's a time where you could say to yourself, okay, I'm going to go and ask my manager for this. And this could go bad in a million different ways. And then when you do it in reality, it will go well, 99% of the time it will go well. And most likely it will go well in a way that you couldn't have foreseen. And in a way, when you play that out in your mind, it's, it's in the beginning of this kind of practice, it's almost as if you do have to have faith. You have to have faith in the power of honesty and the consistency in which it will yield positive outcomes in the universe and, and authentic connection. So when you go into situations thinking, I'm going to be honest and I'm going to authentically connect with another person, you will not be able to conceive a lot of time how that will go because reality is complicated. But what you can know in the beginning to get yourself ready for those conversations is I've never once regretted having an honest and open conversation with another person about what I was thinking or feeling. It's always led my life in the direction it needed to go, whether I could figure out what, whether I could have premeditated what the outcome was going to be or not. And that's the part that takes practice. And even if you don't get what you thought you wanted, you know, it's still, you, what you, need. you still don't regret it. Yeah. I, I always say if, if you're, if, if you get very nervous before a conversation and you're tense about how it might go, um, I mean, the ideal state is just go and have the conversation. But if, if you're really inside your head too much, imagine it going better than you could possibly imagine it going. And that, that it helps free you up uh, because then you think of the upside of the conversation and not just the downside. And I think that's a good lead into uh, to risk. So you have someone comes to you, Sam, and they're in a good situation. They've been in a job for a while. It's, it's a good situation. And a new opportunity comes along. Uh, how, how should, how, how would you counsel someone to, uh, look at, you know, weigh the, the go or stay, uh, uh, problem in that scenario? Yeah, there's the, the instinct is there's always a pros cons list, which is sort of in your mind at the level of your intellect and saying, well, is there more compensation? Does there seem to be more opportunity? Does there, you know, I think there's some of that. But then a lot of what I would tell people now is 
you probably need to go. Just because the fact that you're bringing it to my attention, and I'm just imagining a scenario where somebody's coming to me and says, I feel pretty good at my job right now. I feel pretty stable, but this new opportunity seems really interesting. And I'm not sure if it's the right one. The fact that you're even contemplating enough to consider it and 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 that you you have this opening in yourself that wants something new or wants to try something, and you can acknowledge to some extent that it's more intriguing than what you're doing now, my advice is always to go for it because I think change is change in general is a engine for growth. It stimulates so many things. Like even if you have a good thing going, if you go over there and it's worse you're still going to end up with a net positive change because you'll be challenged and then you'll maybe leave that new role pretty quickly. And whether you go back to the role that you had or you find something even better, it's never going to be one-to-one. I think my advisement would be, you can't think about it as I'm comparing this apple and this orange. It's basically, I have an opportunity and I'm starting to feel energized to make a big change. And if that's what you're bringing to my table, my answer is usually going to be go for it because I, I think people in life evolve through change and you're mostly rewarded for change. It's a mechanic that typically only goes one way. I mean, that, that let me stop there. Cause I know now I'm getting maybe a little abstract from what you asked, but that's my general sentiment I'm trying to articulate. Yeah. Without change, if, what kind of change stimulates the most growth? Forget that, put that aside without change in the absence of change, there can never be growth. So that that's, it's a, it's an actual you know requirement, even if it's an internal change so you know the external one well and that's why that whole back to the whole job hopping thing i think job hopping is fantastic i think the more opportunities you have to meet different people be on different teams be in different industries be in different contexts as long as there's some continuity and you can leverage things that you enjoy doing and your skills and your capabilities it is the engine of growth is change forcing yourself in a new context, learning new things. Even if it's just applying the same skills with different, like I said, different people, different teams, you're learning, you're learning new people, you're learning new, you're having new experiences. I, I mean, even that, that to me is even worth sometimes taking a slightly lower pay or a slightly less ideal situation, because that's how we, that's how we evolve. What about what you lose when you, when you switch jobs? So if you're in a place for a while and you have a great reputation and you're acknowledged, you go to a new place, you know, now, now you got to rebuild, you got to redo that all over again. How, how, did, how do you, you know, it, it will, it might be a surprise to some people, you know, what they had before, you know, before they left. So do you yeah, flag it? Well, I'm going to give an extreme answer, which aligns with consciousness and presence. And, and then I'm going to give a practical answer right after the temporal. So the first conscious answer is you cannot lose what you've never had or owned. And that is something that the fear of loss drives a lot of silly human behavior, or let's say unconscious human behavior. I don't want to be silly. sounds kind of flippant and judgmental. We, we don't own relationships. We don't own things that make us feel comfortable. It's all an illusion of consistency and security. So if you dismiss that notion you can't lose good contacts you made. You can't lose a good team. You can't lose. When you go into something new, that becomes your new present. And you shouldn't feel like I'm suffering a loss or I'm comparing my present circumstances to something I perceived that was good in my past. You don't have the past. Even if you go into your, your team at work and you say you got this great thing going here, the next day it's a new day and it's new circumstances and the people could change, the work could change. You don't ever have anything in and, that regard. And so it's not really a logic. 
use. And I would say the same holds true, like even if you think you don't have those things where you currently are. Like forget about you know a new opportunity. Your past is is never should never haunt you uh, if you're being present. Exactly. You can build what you want to build in the present as much as one can at every moment. There's nothing that is shackling you to any circumstances that came before. So now for a more practical answer, if one has a good thing going and they're like, well, I'm afraid to lose this good thing. Practically speaking, well, actually, I thought I was going to have a more practical answer, but I, I don't. I'm like, I'm pulling up blank because what I just said actually is the way I think, even though I was worried, I was trying to temper myself because I worried it sounds extreme, but it really is about the magnitude of excitement you have to power the change. If you're excited about the new thing, then I mean, honestly, the old thing be damned in a way because it doesn't really so, have any relevance. So you'd, you'd interrogate the things they think they would lose. You'd interrogate all, you know, and, and, and puncture the illusion that it is something that would be lost. Yes, that that I think is the same because, well, and logically speaking, you can't lose it because the only thing that you have is the thing that you experience and you have to go into another like your current job every day to experience that thing. When you go to a new job, it's not like there's this opportunity cost that you had the old you had you could have had both at the same time. Now you have new experiences and you make them what you can make them. Yeah. And before I get that, that, that logic might get too convoluted. You know what I'm trying to say? <laughs> Well, I think it's, I think it was clear to me anyway. Now, what about, uh, you know, the, when you start getting further in your career and uh, you accumulate at the same time uh, a family and things uh, around that family, uh, how does that weigh, how should or should that not weigh into the calculation, uh, your responsibilities in, in, in a calculation of do I stay or do I go? That's a great question. There's no question. There's there's no arguing the fact that if you become extended, where your income creates dependencies for the people who who like like the people who depend on you creates a dependency with your income being consistent and being steady, that can't be dismissed. Now, I do think that if you're in a situation where every dollar you make is going to your family and they require it for their basic means of living. You got to have a conversation with them. You've got to get yourself in a position where you at least have a little breathing room, either through saving or through finding a job and negotiating a contract before you make the change. But my, my general advisement is you've got to be responsible with risk, but changing jobs and the need to change a job doesn't change based on your risk profile. If you're unhappy You've tried your best. You've been honest with the people around you. You don't feel supported. You don't feel like you can get what you need to feel whole at a particular position. You've got to leave financially or not. I think it just adds a layer of complexity, really, logistically of, well, do I have enough savings to bear a little risk? Can my family step up and help or at least ready to batten down the hatches in case there's a bit of a, a bit of a shift in the income here? I, I think it's just like everything in life, balancing risk just adds a, a level of complexity to your decision-making if you want to be responsible, but it's, it doesn't change the need for the decision to be made or the, or the, or the, the answer that you've probably come to. And, and I would add to that, that uh, you, this is always thinking that work and, and family or work and personal is, is, is completely distinct. It's, it's one of the same. If you feel fulfilled in your, in what you're doing at work, that carries through back at home too. If you don't feel fulfilled, 
And if it is in fact a complete uh, um, execution of a sense of responsibility, that's not sustainable anyway. So it is about ultimately it is a balancing act, but I think it does keep coming back to your purpose, you know, and value. And if if you're engaged in something that where you're adding value or your purpose all day long, then that is a lot more sustainable, regardless of any other external factors. Yeah, and and one and one thing I'd like to add to that too is even the way you couch the question is kind of leading the witness in a way because you're talking about well, what about the risk if you've got dependencies? A lot of times people are using things like risk as a justification to remain afraid or or remain complacent. A lot of times people use I have a family or I need this income as a justification to not do something difficult or not do something they're afraid of, which is often making that move, making that change. So like you said, I mean, if you're, if you're being, if you're being conscious and you're not letting fear dictate you risk and your engagement with risk is just another way to either justify or sometimes fortify the things you're afraid of in life. You're afraid of things, bad things materializing for you. So it keeps you in a state of paralysis. Everything that we're generally in terms of a career advisement perspective is you have to sit with yourself and be honest. And if you and and if you're not happy and it's not a sustainable situation, no amount of justifying it or like, you know, shoveling risk or shoveling excuses on top of that pile is going to make it more palatable. It's just going to drain your vitality over time. And that's not what we want to see for you or anyone. And you'll see it, you know, people, uh, that's where you start having to drink heavily on the weekends or when you first get home or like it's, it's that that's where you're, you, you can't live with that tension without something breaking. It's impossible. So ultimately it will reveal itself and that's not an ideal way. And I think, it, I think you said, I think you really said it well before about, you know, risk. It's when you're afraid of losing things, you know, A, the question is, are you, is it, are you really losing them? You know, was it really yours uh, to lose? And B, if you're just reacting from fear in life, that's not a very, you know, uh, that that's not a, that's not sustainable either. Yeah, and you can also think about it relating to what we just talked about the risk conversation, especially when you're talking about risk of your family or people depending on you. I'm going to go right back to where I was ten minutes ago and say it's just an external factor. Have you had an honest conversation with them? Have you been transparent mm-hmm. with the people who depend on you? Have you looked at? Have you had that talk with your family and saying I'm unhappy? This is what I would like for myself in life. Can you, can you support me in any way as I, can you help me help you? I can't tell you also how many people I've talked to who don't have that conversation with their family. They just bear that burden and they don't talk to anyone about it. And again, if you want to know, is it time to go or is it time to stay? Got to be honest, got to be honest with your dependents and your family. You got to be honest with your boss and your coworkers and your colleagues. If you can't have the conversation, you're not going to get the help and we can't do everything on our own. We're part of a collective in whatever circle or context you run in. And if you want to be supported and you want to have personal growth, you have to lean on other people. You have to be vulnerable and you have to have the conversation. And just like with the manager, that conversation might not go the way you want it to go, but that'll also reveal uh, things in your relationship at home that probably are better put on the table than not. Next episode, the follow-up episode of come and go from your job, come and go from your wife and your life. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, hopefully not. Hopefully we've been mindful in all our decisions uh, at, at, at each uh, at each stage. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
Do you think though that time plays a role? I mean, obviously uh, the, the trend is that uh, earlier in a career, people move around a lot more than, you know, at the, at the later stages of a career. Do you think that's a healthy trend? Do you think, you know, why do you think that is? To be blunt, I think, I, I don't know if it's a, if it's a, if it was a trend that was a stable trend, I would say there's probably a few factors that correlate. One is as we get older, we are generally start to harden. So unless you consistently try to change your life as much as you did when you were younger or you had the capacity to do so, you will naturally succumb to inertia. That's just the natural evolution of aging and becoming older. And I also think there's there's an argument to be had where as you jump around a lot, if you do jump around a lot early, you have a better means to explore yourself and the things that suit you and the things that really align with you. And for those that are lucky enough to find alignment in their career, then one would think that there is no tension. And people who are honest in their career, they will eventually find a place where they feel fulfilled. And then the need to move around as much to continue that exploratory process will decline over time if you're engaging with this process correctly. So in, I, I say that because the same behavior could be very different depending on the level of consciousness and where you're coming from. One can just succumb to complacency and unhappiness for a number of reasons, or they can actually find fulfillment and stabilize. Um, but either way, I, I think that trend will probably be consistent as you just observe populations because of those reasons. And hopefully it's because people have found their purpose and they're, they're living a, a very mindful life. Uh, but I think that, I think, I think you raise a, the, another point, though, that uh, people, the older they get, become more risk averse because I think the focus becomes a lot more on what you lose. And, and, uh, and, and you know, I think we tend as people to uh, remember when things don't, didn't work out more than when things did work out. So we collect our fears and, and we, we harden in our fears. Um, but ironically, as, as I guess the person who's representing an older demographic, um, your reflection on life and regret also goes up. So it's like you become more ossified or calcified in, in your ways and less open to change and then reflect that you wish you would have changed. So I think that the, the need for growth, even if you found your purpose, I think is is, is very important. So I think anytime you get too comfortable in any scenario and you're not open to growth, it doesn't matter what your age is. I think that's a, that, that presents a challenge ultimately. I really like how you articulated that. And it's a better way to articulate the complacency that I started to, to pick at, which is that you basically petrify if you aren't present, it's, it's a classic symptom of lack of presence when you feel the weight of all the decisions you made in your life and you conceptualize all this past that continues to grow as things that you carry, conditions that you carry with you. And that's how you become heavy. You become slow. It's like slowly having a backpack on your back and filling it as you get older. And then just watching you get dragged to the ground with, you know, the weight of past decisions, all of these memories and like all of these things you carry around. So if you lack presence, it will eventually crush you and will slow you down. Now, as you age gracefully, or let's say consciously, and you live in the present moment, and you don't let the weight of the past continue to accumulate, then it allows you to stay more agile. It allows you to have more vitality. It allows you to not get weighed down. So that's just generally, I think, a, a really nice way you articulated what it looks like when somebody lacks presence as they, as they continue through their life. 
And don't get me wrong, that those fears, like when you're younger, it's a useful construct, you know, like don't go near the stove, it's hot, you know, et cetera. So like it, it for, it, there is a purpose behind it, but I think then we, we start uh, taking its base function as information and turn it into fear and, uh, and, and that's not very uh, present. Uh, do you have any, fi- I have a final thought and then I'll, I'll ask you for a final thought or sure, I, think, I think this is a good, uh, I think we, so I think that when, when making any decision, I think you really have to, the, the one component that most people I think leave out is when things can go, the things going perfectly, things going optimally in the future state. So like everyone's comparing like the downside it's of everything, but they're not looking at the upsides of, of the decision and comparing the two effectively. So, and, and what that leads to is you, it's all, you justify where you started. So I think the, the one advice I would give is that you should always imagine, what, why imagine just things going poorly, imagine things going optimally, and now take that away and say, if you never took that chance, if you never took that chance for growth, how comfortable would you live never having to giving yourself that opportunity. So I don't know if I articulated that well, but uh, it's, it's the, it's the converse of the, of, of a fear-based thinking. Yeah. And I'll supplement that with my closing thoughts, which I think summarizes this conversation from, from me is whether you move, whether you make a change, <clears throat> maintaining what you feel in this moment should be the biggest driver of, of making, making a change in your life. And what I mean by that is, are you happy or are you unhappy right now? You don't have to qualify it. That's just taking a deep breath when you get up today or in this very moment and saying, am I unhappy with my current present circumstances? And then the next logical step is, have I wielded honesty and earnest discussion with those around me to see if they could help me? And if you've exhausted that, then it's time to change. I, and I think that's a very almost simple way of thinking about it, but a hard thing to execute, a really hard thing. And I'm not seeing a lot of people on my network or a lot of people that are in my sphere who, who engage that really effectively. It's something we have to practice and we have to cultivate. But, but I think you'll find for a lot of people, it will spur a lot more change in your life and those changes will help you grow as a person. And, and as Jonathan mentioned too earlier, the more you practice wielding honesty, as a tool for yourself in every situation, the easier it gets and the better the outcomes will be. So that those are my closing thoughts on the topic. And with that, thanks for joining us. Have a great week and we will talk to you next week.